in the heart of a champion there is a fire and the flames are controlled by burning desire to be the best you can be The revolution of Jesus is in the first place and continuously a revolution of the human heart or spirit. His is a revolution of character. Christ lives in the heart of a champion. And welcome back to the Code of Man podcast. This is Mike Overtrek Barnett. It is so good to be back with you. And we have been off for a little while again, and glad to come back and do another episode today. But I am doing one of those rare things where I'm flying solo, because uh, the rest of the crew is busy. In fact, uh, Easy Target is away right now as I do this. He is away conducting a wedding. So um, I myself, as soon as I'm done with this, will be going to a wedding rehearsal. So all kind of happy times happening around this place. And, of course, Napoleon, well, it's hard telling where he is right now. But I I wanted to slip into our recording studio today because I had something on my heart that I just wanted to share with you and maybe just a short podcast episode just to get back in your world and share with, uh, with you a little bit of what's going on in ours Easy Target and I just came back from a couple of nights uh, getaway, actually car camping, a little bit easier than some of the other trips uh, where we backpack and things, but gave me a lot of time to spend doing some reading, doing some meditating, and uh, just thinking about uh, this the matters of the heart. And I wanted to share some of those things with you today and talk to you a little bit about what it means to live from the heart. What I started reading there in the opening actually comes from One of my favorite books, which I am in the process of reading now, I guess the fourth time since uh, 2022, so I'm pouring through it again. It's Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard, and the subtitle is Putting on the Character of Christ. And he says in the introduction, the introductory chapter, the revolution of Jesus is in the first place and continuously a revolution of the human heart or spirit. His is a revolution of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship to God in Christ and to one another. It is one that changes their ideas, beliefs, feelings, and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. So I was thinking this, the heart. We have all kind of questions that surround the human heart. Uh, Some people, I think, struggle to even know, you know, what is the human heart and how do we define that? And of course, we've been given scriptures that shape how we think about it. Most people are familiar with uh, Jeremiah uh, 17 and verse number 9, where it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And of course, that makes us think, well, how can I trust my heart if it's desperately Uh, wicked and deceitful above all things. But then we have other passages of Scripture that kind of encourage us in the ways of our heart. 
I think about Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, which, again, Jesus will quote this later on in the Gospels many times, but the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. And, of course, when God sends Samuel to anoint David, he tells him, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature because I have refused him, 1 Samuel 16, 7, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now Proverbs twelve twenty says, Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. There's so many verses, so many more that we could look at. And so the question is, the heart, is it good or bad? Can we trust it or not? Do we follow our heart or do we lead our heart? And the answer to all of these questions is, well, yes. The human heart is a complex thing. The muscle in your chest cavity is, yes, of course, that's true, but even more so is the core of your being, the very spirit of life within you, that heart. That's the total package of who you are, and it's what we call the, 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 the total package. We call that the soul of the person, uh, that you are a soul. In other words, we say it like this, you don't have a soul, but you are a soul. The soul is not just the inner spiritual essence the soul is all of our being, body, our mind, our society, our relationships, in other words. And at the center of it all is our heart, what the Bible calls spirit. The Latin word for heart is core, C-O-R, and I like that. It gives the understanding of, hey, this is who I am. It's my core. It's what I'm made of. Now, all this is seen in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 at the very beginning. The whole idea of our, our soul and and how we understand the heart, we get it right at the beginning where God created man. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now right there you have this presentation that when God made us, he was going to make us in his image to be like him. So we're going to need something from God to make that possible. When you go to Genesis chapter 2, you begin to read in verse 4. Follow this with me. See if you can see how God lays out the entirety of the human soul. He says, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now, now already we can see how God has provided for man's needs in the garden. He's created this beautiful, wonderful world that's functioning, I mean, with perfection. But then in the middle of that, God's going to do something great. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What do we have there? We have the man in bodily form. God forms him out of the dust of the ground. We have the man that God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. That's the Spirit of God. And that man, body, and having the Spirit of God in him becomes a living soul. The, the Spirit of God is what animates every part of the man that was created. So his body, his mind, his ability to think and feel, all of that comes from the breath of God. 
And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now you pick it up in verse 15 in Genesis 2. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, and commanded the man. Now there you have the, the need of the man to do work, to, to reflect the image of his creator by being a creator, if you will, and taking care of the garden. And then he gives him the structure, the command of his law, his word. And then the very last thing I wanted to read is, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And, of course, God gave Adam Eve. He gave man the woman. And that completes the package. There's the soul. Everything that the human soul is is outlined for us in that passage. The body, the mind, the spirit, the, the social order, uh, the relationships, the work, everything. So every aspect of the human soul is present there. But it's when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life that he became a living soul. That breath of God in you, that is your heart. It came from God. Now, of course, we have to acknowledge that man did sin, and of course, that image of God in us and that heart that God had given us becomes marred. It becomes corrupted by that sin. We call that original sin, but friends, let's not forget our original glory. Both are vital to understanding the role of your heart and how we can both live from the heart but also be aware of the heart's deception. Here's what got me thinking on all of this. I was in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, the other day, and I was revisiting this uh, for a devotional that I was writing in our church. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us this, this, this story of Moses and, uh, and how he came out of Egypt and Hebrews 11:24 says that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He choose, or chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But this next verse really caught my attention. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. And I would love to give you so much out of that text and lay out all those wonderful thoughts that that stirs in my heart. But of course, that's not the primary focus of this podcast today. Perhaps one day I'll be able to give more. But this passage, I think, captures in two sentences, Hebrews 11, 24 through 27, there's just two sentences there of Moses' journey of by faith. And right up front, we have to acknowledge that no man or woman is of any great measure in and of themselves. We're all clay pots, we're all marred, we're all cracked, but within us, there is that dynamic life of the soul we call the heart, that God-breathed spirit in us. And in that is where God pours his grace and his marvelous life-changing spirit comes to indwell us. And so with that stated, I just want to say that I see Moses, the whole story of Moses, but even in this two sentences in Hebrews 11, this is a superhero of the faith, this man Moses. These descriptive phrases that are given here, choosing rather, I want you to think about that word choosing, it reflects something of the heart. He, made, he makes a choice in his life, and it's a huge life-altering choice. Choosing rather, and what does he choose? He chooses affliction, and he chooses it on purpose, to be with the people of God. And you have to say, when you hear that, what? Who does that? And then add to that, that he chose the affliction with the people of God over the pleasures and the riches and the comforts of Egypt's palaces and positions and titles. And why? How would he do that? He did it by faith. And then the Bible says, esteeming the reproach of Christ as greater riches. Now, by any standard of the world's measurement and most religious measurements, 
This man had lost his mind. But in truth, he had done what few people ever really do. He had found his mind and he had led his heart. Now that was an act of the will. He made the decision to forsake the world and to choose the way of God. And it wasn't a whim. It wasn't some emotional reaction in the moment where he lost control and just dove off the deep end. That word esteeming literally means to lead, to command. From the place of proper and thorough consideration, he took command of his heart and made a choice. How did he do that? Why did he do that? He did it by faith. Now, as students of Scripture, we would all do well to pay attention to the many ways the Bible calls on us to lead our heart. And I know, I know you've probably heard before, you know, uh, don't follow your heart, lead your heart. Well, if the heart's led well and it is good soil producing good fruit, it can be led and it can be followed. In other words, we can learn how to live out of and trust the good heart in us that, the, that God has given us in Christ. Now, the, the Bible word here for esteeming is the Greek word hegemai, and, and it's used throughout the New Testament, several key places. I want to give you a couple of other examples, and I want you to hear how that our, by our mind, by our proper, thorough consideration and thinking, we can actually lead ourselves into the right heart or the right spirit. So Paul says in Acts 26 and 2, he says, I think myself happy. Now that word think is the word hegeomai, the same as esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches. In 2 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says, I thought it necessary. And that's not just a whim. Paul didn't just like, yeah, you know, hey, yeah, I think it's a good idea. No, he thought it. It was through proper and thorough consideration that he leads his heart into the decision that this is a necessary thing. Philippians 3, Paul's testimony, verse 7 and 8, I counted all things lost for Christ. That word counted is the same word, hegeomai. And get this one, James 1, 2, James says, speaking of our many trials and many tribulations, he says, count it all joy, hegeomai. Think about it, consider it, and then decide that it's the joy of your life to go through all these trials and tribulations. That's some pretty heavy stuff. I agree. You're right. <laughs> There's great power in our capacity to lead our heart. But the natural question that comes out of that is, well, what's deeper than our heart? I mean, if our heart is the deepest, truest part of who we are, then what part of me can actually lead the part which should be the leader in me? In other words, how and in what way can I lead my heart? So it all comes back to the importance of single-mindedness or the unity of our soul. Again, the soul, remember what we're talking about, every part of our, our personhood. And when we truly think and suppose and count and esteem in the biblical way, the mind is at work. But it is a mind when it is, as Moses was, saturated in uh, a faith. It's a mind that's being informed by that faith. And get this, and here's a key thought. Faith-informed thinking leads to God-honoring living. So let me say that one more time. Faith-informed thinking leads to God-honoring living. And so Moses went on to forsake Egypt. That means he abandoned it. He just left it behind. He just totally walked away from it and said, I've got no use for this anymore. Christ is better. Christ is more. Christ is richer. Christ is all. 
And, and I think about all the ways we can apply that in our lives. There may be some things right now, guys, gals, in your life that is really of Egypt and is really not good for you, and you really ought to just walk away from it. You ought to forsake it, choosing Christ, esteeming he being the better choice. And so you buy that faith-informed thinking, you can make that right decision into God-honoring living. And Moses did it, and it says he endured. How did he endure? He, he was steadfast to the choice he made because he kept his eyes on God all the way. And how did he do that? By faith. It was the journey of by faith. Blaise Pascal wrote many, many years ago, it is the heart which perceives God and not the reason. That is what faith is. God perceived by the heart. We do live in an age, and we've been in it for a long time, where people tend to think that our intellect is the most important part of us, our ability to analyze, to comprehend with our minds. But the Bible does not seem to support that. The Bible seems to support more uh, that it is our heart which must come first, that we actually do live from our heart. I referenced the book by Dallas Wildard earlier, The uh, Renovation of the Heart. The very first words of the book on page number five in the introduction, chapter one, we live from our hearts, the part of us that drives and organizes our lives. And so this is a belief that I think for many years and in many circles has been lost, but the truth is we do live from our heart. How does uh, Dallas Willard explain the heart in this book? Well, here's one more excerpt from Renovation of the Heart. The human heart, will, or spirit is the executive center of a human life. The heart is where decisions and choices are made for the whole person. That is its function. This does not mean that the whole person actually does only what the heart directs any more than a a whole organization actually does precisely what the chief executive officer directs. That would be ideal, perhaps, and again, perhaps not. But as any CEO or person in a management position or even the head of a family knows, the system rarely goes as it is directed and never perfectly so. Many factors are always at work in the decisions and actions that actually occur. The individual, like the group, is often divided into incoherent fragments, end quote. So again, I go back to the thought. This is why single-mindedness is so important. This is why when the psalmist says, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. This is a very important prayer. And even if we don't pray it exactly as it is, is in the psalm, getting that prayer inside of us is vital. Lord, unite my heart to fear thy name. I want my heart to be singular. I want my heart to be one because double-mindedness, makes me unstable in all my ways. There's another book that I've been reading. I had it with me on that recent trip that I mentioned. It's by Dr. Anita Phillips. It just came out. It's just, it, the title of it is The Garden Within, Where the War with Your Emotions Ends and Your Most Powerful Life Begins. I love that she talks about the interconnectedness and the interdependence of the human soul, that the heart, the mind, and the body all work together. This is a picture of holiness. But she uses a garden as an example. In this excerpt from chapter 6, Water, Water Everywhere, listen to how she explains this. I love the garden model for understanding well-being because a garden is an interdependent living system. It's all connected. However, when it comes to our lives, we have been taught to understand ourselves as a collection of separate parts. Defining ourselves in this way isn't very helpful. 
We know that we have a spirit, a heart, a mind, and a body, but when it comes to taking care of ourselves, that knowledge is meaningless if we don't know how each part depends on the others. Then she goes on in the next paragraph to use this illustration, a car engine. Parts alone do not make an engine. They must be assembled and connected in the right relationships to become a system. When that system is properly fueled and activated, something emerges that no individual part had on its own. Power. Now think about that. Friends, that is a wonderful illustration of the role of your heart, but also of understanding how the heart properly functions inside of us. Our heart, when it is working well with our mind and working well with our body, when it is all under the direction of God's Spirit, when it is all saturated with His Word, which is like the seed that's sown in our soil called the heart, then we get this thing called wholeness, everything working together properly. The Bible word is holiness, and that's what it means, wholeness. So I take what she writes here, and I think about wholeness or holiness, and I think wholeness equals integrity. Wholeness equals power. So when we have integrity of the soul, we have powerful life. When the heart, the mind, and the body are all working together, functioning as they should under the headship of Christ and the influence of the Holy Spirit and the, the informing and the empowering of the truth of God's Word, man, that's when we're living powerful lives. That's when our hearts are really good. Listen, Jesus believes in your good heart. Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Notice that Jesus mentions the heart first. Love God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. So Jesus believes that you can love God out of your heart. Well, you can't do that if your heart's totally deceptive and totally broken and, and, and useless. But if the heart is where it ought to be, under the headship of Christ, the influence of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Word, well, then you can love God with your good heart. In Matthew 12, 35, Jesus makes a distinction. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. So when we are good, and we're only good as we're in Jesus, right? But we have a good treasure in our heart to bring forth good things. But he goes on to say, but an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. So Jesus not only believes in our good heart, but he does warn us to watch out for the evil that can arise from a heart that's not being well cared for. Remember, Proverbs 4.23 says that we're to guard over our heart, watch over our heart, keep your heart with all diligence, because out of it are the issues of life, or the, the, the flow of life comes from the heart. And so Jesus warns us to watch out for the evil that can arise when we don't tend to our heart properly. Matthew 15, 18, and 19. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Okay, so what is the answer? Is our heart good? Is it bad? What are we supposed to do with it? I think Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is one of those passages that connect this for us. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So what I hear in that passage is that it is by bringing my heart under the leading of God's spirit and truth. I really need to stay in that zone of Psalm 119.97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. But if I will do that, if I'll bring my heart under the leading of God's Spirit and truth, then guess what? 
I can go forth. I can walk. I can trust what's happening inside my heart. How many times have you ever prayed? And, and with, with faith and desire, you ask God, Lord, what do you want me to do about this situation? And then you have a thought, you have a, an, an unction, a feeling, but then you think to yourself, oh, that's probably just me. Oh, that, that, I, I just can't trust that. I can't trust my heart. Well, if we are operating, remember, faith-informed thinking will lead to God-honoring living. Our heart, our mind, and ultimately our actions and our body working together. We can do this. We can keep ourselves under the leading of God's Spirit and truth, of course, by reading the Scriptures, but we can also do it through conversations with our brothers, through worship, by reading great books such as those that I've recommended here today. How do you learn how to live from the heart, though? Well, we've got to cultivate the soil. We learn to weed the garden. We follow Moses' example of the journey of by faith, and we esteem and choose and forsake the world, and we pursue and endure in the pursuit of Christ. We, we don't isolate the heart from the rest of ourselves. Remember, it's all interconnected, all dependent on each other to have power. Integrity of the soul brings, to powerful, brings powerful living. So we see our heart as part of the whole. We treat the body well. We treat the mind well. We live in community well. This is how we do this. We practice soul care. We seek wellness in every aspect of who we are as people. Yes, nutrition and exercise matter. Mental challenges to build our mind and our thinking skills. We honor our emotions. We don't run from them. We don't hide them. We don't treat them as bad things. And we do life with friends whom we can trust, and we give ourselves to serving and caring for others who need us. So around here in our area of operation, we like this motto from our Way of Holiness Conference. Slow your pace, shrink your world, shepherd your heart. And why does all this matter? Why this episode about living from the heart? Well, I think we're in a period of time in the history of the world and in the history of the church where the strength of the churches will be linked inseparably to the strength of men's hearts in the church. As Jesus was describing the end of the age that his disciples asked him about in that Olivet Discourse, in Luke 21 he says this, Luke 21 and verse 26, Men's hearts will be failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Failing hearts... It's one word in Greek. It just simply means to faint, to just give out, predominantly from fear, all kinds of fear. But I think we get taxed in this day and age. We are often very distracted. We are often fragmented. And sometimes we isolate ourselves far too much. And we're not drawing strength. We're not focusing on God's word. We're not spending time in the right community to draw from one another. And this affects our hearts. We need strong hearts. Our families need us to have strong hearts. Our children need it. Man, we can't give up. We can't collapse. We can't faint. Our churches need us to have strong hearts. It's a reason we've been encouraging our friends here to pray this, Lord, enlarge my heart for you and enthuse my heart with you. Well, I want to close this podcast with a prayer for you and, and for all of us. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, here and now, we bring our hearts before you, all of our hearts together. 
Our need in this day is to have strong and good hearts. We need hearts that are wholly set on you, hearts being exercised in faith so that we can discern and decide and we can, we can endure in the, the difficulties. Lord, I pray for the men and the women that are listening right now. I pray that we will receive a sense of how very needed our hearts are in terms of how we fight for one another and stand for truth and in the everyday places and circumstances where the enemy lies to us, the flesh is tempted, and the world's out to distract and fragment our souls. But I pray that we'll be a church of devout, honorable, meek, courageous, passionate, temperate, and wise-hearted disciples of the way of Jesus. And in his name I pray, amen. In the heart of a champion, there is a fire. And the flames are controlled by burning desire. To be the best you can be. In the heart of a champion